Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast, the podcast for anyone interested in the issues, innovations and challenges of operating the temperature-controlled supply chain in the UK and around the world. My name is Shane Brennan and I'm the Chief Executive of the UK Cold Chain Federation. It's the week of the 7th of October and it's been a roller coaster. We started the week with a range of positive get back to work messages and the children heading back to school. But within hours, we're being told of UK-wide restrictions on social gatherings, another worrying period of uncertainty. It's also a week when the B word has returned with a vengeance. We're 80 days away from the end of the UK's membership of the single market. The negotiations are ongoing and the rhetoric and recrimination has been dialed up to 11. I co-signed a letter with leaders of the UK logistics industry expressing our alarm at just how unprepared we feel we are for the complex matrix of red tape that we have to manage. It's been four years since the vote, but still now, 80 days to go, and we don't have clarity on exactly what the rules will be, how IT systems will work and how traffic plans will be managed. I've got meetings with Michael Gove and other ministers and senior officials in coming days and weeks, and we will do all we can to help you to prepare to cope with the challenges ahead. One of the questions that kind of gets forgotten in all of this is what is Brexit for? What will the UK's trade policy be in the years ahead and how does that affect the cold chain? I regret that there are, for, for all the endless debate on the Brexit issues, the government seems to have made little progress on this fundamental question. One organisation that has been very focused on the big picture implications of Brexit is the National Farmers Union. And one person in particular has been their key man behind the scenes, meeting with the UK government, EU, the World Trade, World Trade Organization, the US, New Zealand and others. That is Nick von Wessenholtz and I'm delighted to bring you this conversation that I had with him about the short and long-term issues of Brexit and wider free trade agreements with the world. Nick and I have crossed paths on and off on a few occasions throughout the years and there is no doubting his intellect, knowledge and considered view on this important topic. Here is what he had to say. Hi Nick, welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. Hi, thanks Shane. Great, thanks for, thanks for you, know, you and I have sort of worked together a bit over the years in different different guises, um, but can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your role at the NFU? Yeah, so I came to, to the NFU this time around, because I, I was with the NFU in a, in a previous life as well, but this time around in, um, in January 2017, um, uh, in the role, the newly created role of um, Director of EU Exit and International Trade, um, because basically after the the referendum in summer 2016, the NFU decided they wanted uh, to set up a, um, a a bespoke unit within the organisation to deal with um, uh, the the implications of the, of the referendum results. So I was recruited to to run that team, and have uh, yeah been in place for for three and a half years now. Um, and I think it, it made sense um, for the NFU to do that because there's so many different aspects of of uh, our membership of the EU and therefore leaving the EU, that impact on farming. It's not just about trade, although that is an enormous one because we trade so much in agri-food products with uh, with the EU, as you, you well know. Um, but we've also got big issues around the ending of free movement of labour. There's a lot, lot of EU workers working in UK agriculture. Uh, and of course, we are subject to the common agricultural policy. So actually, um, you know, agriculture is one of those sectors of the economy um, which largely operates under uh, EU laws and regulations even if they've been transferred into into, into UK law but it's it is the, the sector probably along with fisheries that, that is most most sort of impacted um, I think by by uh, by by the result of the referendum yeah and I think you've probably 
have have basically been found yourself at the center of not of kind of quite a lot of the action really because a lot of the politics of the brexit and actually future trade discussions have really centered around the food industry haven't they so a lot of the general public have seen the sort of discussions through the prism of food issues would you would, would you agree with that yeah I, I think absolutely i mean i'd like to think that's because of the the excellent work of the nfu of, uh, of getting these issues up the agenda but i also think it's because well food is a is a is a subject that raises the passions people uh, are you know probably more interested in food where it comes from how you know healthy it is how risky it might be etc much more than 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 many other uh, products or areas of life but also because it is just that thorny issue in in international trade policy generally you know it's always the sticking point in trade deals even when food uh, and farming as as is the case in the uk is a comparatively small part of the economy you know it, it really means stuff to people so so it has been you know in a in a way and i'm not sure necessarily always for for for, for the right reasons but it has been the the poster boy of um of, of many of the political debates over the last few years yeah yeah and can so yeah and well, let's go let's come on and talk about some of that because there's some some lots of details to unpack that i'd like to ask you about but just to start us off really in broad terms what would you what is the sort of national farmers union's hope for the uk's food trade policy once we've got past the end of the brexit transition what's your vision for how it should work well i think there's there's two main aspects which is firstly what what's the, the domestic policy landscape um, and as i said we're, we're leaving the common agricultural policy and there's a massive policy agenda around what future uh support system looks like for farming what you know what what farmers are doing if uh, they're receiving subsidy payments etc um and there's some quite radical proposals uh in train which have have been uh being worked up for a couple of years now so generally around the world farmers are paid uh so subsidies on the basis of if not direct production because that's generally not allowed under wto rules but certainly relative to uh, their jobs as farmers um, and uh, land managers. But the UK vision now is for public money for public goods. So it'll essentially be farmers being paid to look after the environment or deliver things like flood alleviation schemes, essentially things they don't get rewarded by the marketplace for. Um, and that's a, it's a big change. Um, and on the face of it, a lot of that's quite interesting and could be quite... Um, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks, Nick, because obviously you and I worked together when I was working at the Country Land and Business Association, and um, so obviously very involved in that in that whole agenda. Actually, one of the things I think is probably worth for my the members who are probably listening to this podcast, actually that not all members don't necessarily realise the extent of sort of government intervention support and sort of sort of direct financial in, in, impact into the actual farming side yeah. of of what we do. So yeah, the, the, the level of that change is pretty. Precise, Mick. It, it is. Um, for almost approaching half of farmers in the UK, the, the payments they receive in, in what we call direct payments um, is the difference between them uh, uh, making a profit or running at a loss. So they're really significant and they're essentially going. So those are being removed over a seven year period. And this new system, as I said, for public goods is, is coming in place. So there's a massive amount of uncertainty. And I would be lying if I said there wasn't uh, quite a lot of anxiety about it too. Farmers have had a pretty bad experience um, uh, over the last couple of decades of successive 
cap reform programs when the system has been sort of overhauled quite uh, in, in quite a radical way and it's always led to to big problems major delays in payments um big big business impacts uh, in fact and what's being proposed this time looks even more sort of radical and fundamental than than that so there is a lot of uh, a lot of nervousness and i think the the other interesting aspect of this and and uh, your your members would probably be interested in this is is it's it's looking to break in a much more clear way the link between public support public money and food production here in the uk so really it's it's the, the potential is to impose uh, a new system which is is all about looking after the landscape looking after the environment etc and doesn't really uh, dabble at all in farmers um, producing food now we've actually pushed back quite heavily on that and lots of people are and it may be that uh, we see we see the sort of the the food production aspect of, of domestic policy uh, come back a little bit uh, um, and, and we'll see what happens there but it is it will be quite a radical change and it could have some quite significant um, uh, impacts on on how much food we produce here in the UK. And I guess that and that obviously quite closely interrelates to the issues around trade doesn't it and actually what, what sort of trading arrangements we have with the EU and the rest of the world post the end of the transition yeah uh, they're very closely connected um uh you know as as i said right at the beginning most of our trade in agri-food products is with the eu i think we export about over over 60 percent of our exports uh, go to the eu and are over 70 percent of our imports in agri-food come from um come from the eu so it's a major trading partner for us and it will continue to be so um you know it's not just because we've been within the single market that you've got such a, a, a large um, extent of trade between the UK and EU. It's because there is a massive market of relatively affluent people on our doorstep uh, and proximity matters in, in trade, particularly in trade in goods. So um, what happens with the EU relationship is going to be really critical and indeed what happens with some of these other trade deals that we're doing. Um, you know, it hasn't escaped the notice of farmers that um, you know, the three big priority countries we are negotiating with at the moment, Australia, uh, USA and New Zealand, are all major agricultural producers, yeah. all with a pretty keen eye on uh, on the UK, on the UK market and opening it up a bit more. Totally. Yeah. And obviously cold chain operators are providing that sort of facilitation of movement of goods. And actually they're doing it from farm to fork in within the UK sort of british isles they're also doing it internationally as well so we kind of we're kind of a neutral in terms of much of as as we kind of provide services to all, all parts but um obviously how this balance shifts has big implications for how we organize our supply chain um and our infrastructure going forward can i before i will get you into i'm gonna get into the detail of a couple of those points in a, in a moment nick but can i just sort of ask you a question that sort of often comes up um, around sort of the balance between and, and starting on the import side and sort of what we consume here in the UK kind of side of things. This idea of self-sufficiency or the amount of food that we consume that is basically grown or reared here in the UK. What Do you have a view, Zin, if you have a view on how much that should be or, or what the balance is between what we've produced domestically and what we import? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a great question, um, and it's it's one we get asked a lot. You know, what is the perfect number, or you know, what's the perfect 
proportion of um, uh, self-sufficiency. So how much of the food we eat should we be producing here? Um, obviously, there is the question about or the issue that some of the food we eat and we like to eat, we can't produce here, um, particularly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lots of uh, fruits. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of indigenous food, um, we've never put a, a figure on it because I think um, it's a bit arbitrary to do so. At the moment, the figure is about 60%. Um, and it's fallen, that has fallen from a high, I think, in the early 80s of, of, of around 80%. So we are producing much less. And that figure definitely feels feels too uh, too low. But and so we're producing less, Nick. So we're, so, so it's not just about population growth. Is we literally, there is more less volume coming out of UK farming that's, that's, today than there was in the 80s. That's a very good question. I'm not sure the volume has dropped a lot in some sectors a bit, um, but it is a population issue as, as well. Um, and I think if you look to total consumption figures, they've probably gone up a bit and, and some of that's not good because it's just means waste has gone up a little bit as yeah. as well um but actually it's you know the 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 we we don't you know, nobody is suggesting certainly we're not suggesting that we should be producing all the food but that we eat um you know a, a resilient food sector needs a broad um uh, um sort of uh, sourcing strategy so we need we do need imports if we put all our uh, eggs in one basket to, <laughs> to use a, 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 a suitable phrase um, then actually you know if we do have problems with domestic production we, we get ourselves into problems just as much if we're over relying on imports so I think we we have to acknowledge that imports have an important part to play in food security um, but you can go too far either way um, and at the moment yeah. it does it's definitely going downwards there's a downward trend in terms of the amount of food we produce domestically the, that we consume um, and we definitely want to to, to to reverse that of course we do we're, we're farmers yeah. we want to be producing more and in fact what we really want to do is grow our domestic market and our and our export market um, at the same time yeah. uh, that's a challenge but um, um, you know that's the sort of ideal yeah and, and and exports I guess is the question that I particularly have an interest in I get quite frustrated because I get asked when I get asked about Brexit issues or trade issues I tend to get asked about the risks to UK consumers of interruptions and in supply from imports and the like when I think that probably the single most immediate existential threat we face is to our export markets particularly our, our EU export market um, for food if there are sort of difficult well if there's a no deal or a or acrimonious situation that emerges in a few well weeks time now um how do you sort of see the export market um sort of dynamics and what how, how how are the farmers feeling about the prospects for exporting into 21 and 22 um right now well i mean i share your concerns about the focus you know very much being primarily on imports and domestic food supply which is important and important for for our members but the exports issue is is really critical as well um and it's especially if you look at some of those sectors which are net exporters or have large exports into into the eu um so in particular lamb for example um you know an enormous nearly all of our exports uh, of lamb are into the eu um, and it's around about sort of 35 to 40% of our total production is exported. Um, so if you're suddenly facing 
big tariffs and on lamb that could be 40 to 45 percent um on that that that'll have a huge impact on that on that sector if there's suddenly those tariffs come in overnight which they could do um and barley is another one we sell a lot of barley into the eu market and again that could face some some big tariffs uh, overnight if we don't get get a deal so and when we talk about the eu market nick i mean is it possible to sort of delineate between ireland on the one hand and the rest of the eu or, or is that a particular factor in this or not well, it is. Um, that is our main market and actually where we import um, in, in, in terms of some products in particular, like beef, for example, you know, mm -hmm. the vast majority of imports from the EU are coming in from, from Ireland. So it is a very spe specific market for us, um, but it, it's subject to the same uh, the same issues that arise with the EU as a whole, of course, uh, mm -hmm. notwithstanding uh, a lot of confusion about how the Northern Ireland protocol is going to work. And that's a whole other, um, yes. you know, nightmare. Uh, to... we, haven't got, we haven't got enough time. <laughs> Theresa May is talking about that right now right. as we're speaking yeah. in, the, in the House of Commons, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but, interestingly. But, 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 yeah, but other, you know, and that, that is an issue because if there's an open border there, you might well find us a sort of backdoor into the UK um, for, for many products that can get around some of the, the import restrictions that might exist generally for the eu but in terms of exports ireland is important but actually you know depends what 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 product but a lot of our lamb goes into into france and into western europe uh, a lot of our barley goes into northern europe into germany and places like that um and and indeed you know lots of other products we we sell all over europe so um that the same concern as you you know big big concern over what the impact of no deal in particular would be on on exports do you have an assessment of the level of preparedness in the farming community, particularly the farmers that are engaged in exporting? And I guess it might be actually quite secondary. I guess not a lot of farmers are directly sort of organising their own exports to, 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 to foreign markets. But um, preparedness for what's coming as of sort of 1st of January in terms of the, 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 the red tape that they're going to have to comply with in order to be able to continue to do what they do. Yeah, um, as you say, most farmers are not themselves directly responsible um, uh, for for exporting. Although some will be, you get some big, uh, big, bigger producers who have sort of integrated, vertically integrated uh, supply chains, and they might do you know uh, packing and uh, uh, exporting as well. Um, but but most won't. And actually, it's quite a tricky one for us because. The ch there are lots of changes and lots of risks, particularly in no deal, um, which come into play from 1st of January. But from an individual farmer's perspective, there's not an awful lot that, that actual individual farmers can do um, mm. other than make sure that their businesses are, are resilient and prepared for, for disruption. You know, it may well be that uh, there's quite considerable downward pressure on prices um you know there's not a lot they can do about that but just to make sure that their businesses are, are able to weather that storm for a bit um you know if there's going to be disruption in certain supply chains make sure that they're um well prepared for that for that too but in terms of the the sort of logistics of of trade um much that doesn't necessarily fall on the farmers themselves it'll fall onto their 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 customers 
often um and it's their customers who who um you know will be having to suddenly fill in a load of forms get export health certificates signed um etc uh and and that's kind of where the, the so a lot of the cold chain operators do come in sure. um and I mean, I would say that I think there's a level of preparedness concern I've got for, and there's a distinction, a distinction again in my market between those that do the job of driving the truck or organizing the company that drives the truck um, versus those that are actually responsible for the import-export processes. And actually, the danger of things falling between two stools between those links in the chain are probably our single biggest risk that we're trying to control for right now. Um, I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question. Um, do you think there will be a Brexit deal by the time we get to the 1st of January? Um, on balance, I think there will be still, yeah. I have to yeah. say over the last few days that, that you know, has um, has tempered a little bit from mm. being, you know, generally relatively bullish that there would be a deal to now being just about on balance. I think there'll be, there'll be a deal. Um, no deal is definitely possible, but I still think that the... The potential disruption and damage from no deal will be something any government would want to avoid if they could um, on both sides on both sides um, I think there is a degree of brinkmanship we're seeing in lots of the the briefings and the hmm. um, media stories uh, going around at the moment um, and you know, even though I, I do think that actually probably on both sides, the, the UK and the EU side, there's been quite a lot of misreading of the intentions and the motives of the other side. Um, that, you know, the, the UK government is right to a certain degree that in these sorts of things, last minute 11th hour deals do get done. But I don't mean by that necessarily December the 30th. Uh, you know, I am thinking uh, October, uh, late October is probably when when we will really begin to know. It could, could leach into November a little bit, but I don't think it can go on much longer than that. And do you think, <laughs> this, is, this is even harder, this is a $2 million question. Do you think it will include food? Um, to, yes, to an extent. So I think, you know, there is a willingness for zero tariffs on goods including including yeah. food yeah. Um, and i think that'll be almost the core of the deal the 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 question am I right sorry Nick, before you are you am i right in essentially saying that would probably be the first time the eu's done a zero tariff deal with a market on food uh it would be the uh, first time they've done a totally zero tariff deal yeah if you look at ceta yeah. the canadian deal for example um there's pretty significant tariff liberalization in there but there are sensitive products on both sides where tariffs mm. remain and a lot of the, the tariff concessions are phased in over quite a long period of time. Um, and, you know, at the end of which there'll be a, still a few items which, which there'll be tariffs on. But so if they did that, it certainly would be. Although, of course, we are completely zero for zero tariff at the moment. So yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of easier to do. Um, mm. But I think that would be be the intention and and for 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 food and farming it's those tariffs which will have the really big impact if there isn't a deal um mm. the big question marks are going to be though over the non-tariff barriers the yeah. uh the checks the certification uh you know the export health certificates etc all of those requirements so um you know generally a certain proportion of goods uh, of animal products uh you know uh, um would need to be checked um uh for 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 health issues um and the question mark really is as part of a deal how 
low can you get that those requirements for for checks um, and if it's low, then that hopefully means that trade is fairly smooth. But if they're having to stop and check a lot of consignments going through, and that'll be directly relevant to your members, um, you know, that can have a big impact on their businesses, and that often gets passed right down the chain to uh, to the producers. So that that's the sort of big big issue for us. And who knows how that is going to be dealt with in a yeah. in a in a deal. I'm pretty pessimistic about the amount of concessions is going to be around the red tape requirements i think i think i'm i think i'm with you i'm relatively optimistic about zero tariff being agreed at the end of the day in some form in some way but the idea of zero kind of compliance and red tape for moving goods between the two markets i think is pretty slim hope yeah I, i'd agree with you i think i think i think it's a question of degree um yeah. and the the other factor here though is how quickly you can agree some of this stuff and i and i think there is a big question mark about whether um there can be a phasing in of of some of these requirements obviously there's been lots of bullish talk about it's over it's done transition period ends uh from january the first um but that could mean a lot of very um stringent new requirements immediately coming into play to the extent that the UK government on trade coming the other way into the UK from the EU has already said they're going to phase in a lot of those requirements around customs and, and uh, uh, SBS checks over a six-month period. Um, you know, it would, I think, be helpful if they could try and secure uh, some sort of uh, transitional arrangements as well um, for trade going the other way at the, uh, uh, throughout next year, whether that's possible politically or logistically i don't know but um you know that that is another big one to watch out for i think well and i guess the reason for all of that has is, is about about a much bigger conversation which is about the way in which the uk treats its regulatory standards around food and i think that's probably the area where you guys and then if you have been you know absolutely clear throughout and been championing and and achieved quite significant concessions with the creation of the trade and agriculture commission by dit um, what do you? What's the role of that? What what what, what is the, the sort of nature of this conversation we're having about standards within food at yeah, the moment? Yeah, I think well, it, it's sort of multifaceted in a way, and there's lots of different groups and interests in society who who look at it in a slightly different way. But the way I look at it is, you know, UK producers um, have comparatively very high standards, by which I mean there's high regulatory requirements on your average farmer, which come with some quite high costs. So the sorts of animal welfare uh, requirements that they're required to observe, the environmental requirements that they need to observe um, are, are quite high. And, and that means that their costs of production are high. It's not the only reason that UK farmers have comparatively high costs of production compared to other farmers elsewhere in the world, but it's definitely an important one. Um, and therefore, you, you then have to ask the question, well, if we are going to increase the imports we get from elsewhere in the world, which is essentially the government's direction of travel, um, opening up trade deals and, and our market to, um, to non-EU countries to a greater degree than currently exists, um, then our farmers are going to be put at a competitive disadvantage if that food is produced to lower costs because of of lower standards so so that's how we look at it and we our view is actually our standards should be the benchmark uh, we're not asking for 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 imports to be stopped we're just saying if stuff is going to be sold 
on the UK market, it should be produced to the same standards. It should be on a on a on a level playing field. To use another phrase, which is and 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 you've mentioned welfare, but you also mean sort of food safety standards yeah. and environmental standards as well. Uh, uh, absolutely, and they're all a bit different. Animal welfare, in a way, is quite easy to 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 sort of uh, monitor and enforce because you have some some quite clear requirements on things like stocking densities or what drugs can and can't be used uh, in veterinary treatments, etc. Um, environmental standards are a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, farmers have to do lots of things in terms of keeping nitrates or uh, other contaminants out of water courses, you know, even things like cutting hedges when you're allowed to do that, when you're not allowed to do that, um, all those little things. But they do, they do just add, a, add, you know, bit by bit burden on, on farmers bit more difficult to to compare those but it is a cost of production issue and then when it comes to food safety that is quite different because actually requirements around food safety are well uh, well understood and fairly well established and this is actually the core of this whole political problem you can basically um, you, you you've got quite a lot of flexibility and control as a government to uh, control imports if they're unsafe or if you've got a food safety concern over those. Um, WTO rules allow you to do quite a lot if you can prove that something is unsafe. Mm. Much, much weaker when it comes to controlling imports or banning imports because you don't like the way it's been produced. If the end product is still safe for consumption or safe to be released in your environment, then the way that it was actually produced is sort of seen as an irrelevance. So the fact that a chicken in the US might have been produced to lower welfare standards. If the chicken at the end of the day coming into your shores and being put on the on the on the shop shelf is 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 safe to eat, then that's all that matters. And that's really the problem at the heart of this. If we have a government yeah. which states as it does that our animal welfare requirements are really important and it's not gonna import food not produced uh, to our high animal welfare uh, requirements, that's great. But let's see actually how you can do that because um under under international law it's quite difficult yeah no that makes that makes it really helpful to explain that i think a lot of people who hear this conversation this debate we don't necessarily understand the parameters of it i guess from a cold chain perspective obviously we have a le very limited stake in the issues around welfare um in terms of in terms of uh, our adult exposure on the environmental side we obviously do and i don't know if it's featured at all and just say no if it hasn't now, i know the eu for example is talking about things like a carbon border tax on goods for that might potentially have environmental impacts, inbuilt environmental uh, costs in them. Do you see that featuring in the considerations, probably not straight away, but in the medium and longer term around how we see the way we treat imports of goods and particularly food goods? Yeah, I, I think it will increasingly become part of the conversation. I think obviously for farmers, um, the issues around carbon and climate change um, are slightly different to, to the cold chain but in broad terms you know we all share this kind of challenge that that the government has a commitment for around um reducing carbon and uh, you know moving towards a, net zero, net zero yeah. exactly and so as the nfu we've actually um committed our own ambition for farming in the uk to be net zero by by 2040 um, and actually, for us, I think there's there's opportunities in this as much as as, as challenges because, as I was mentioning a moment ago, the U UK farming is comparatively globally high standard farming. Our our general requirements around animal welfare and environment are are high. Um, 
therefore it might be something that we can have a have a competitive advantage on if we can really demonstrate the the advantages and also open up markets for uh for, you know, climate friendly food however you want to term it you know food produced with a with a lower carbon footprint but of course if you're going to do that you, it comes back to the level playing field option we you know we really want um you know we we don't want to be then undercut by food produced uh without those requirements and, and aspirations that's cheaper um and it's you know it's so, and, and so that, that and that to me and i've always sort of, it might always help me in my mind to think about this in terms of regulatory spheres and i guess when you're getting outside of the sort of we're in the eu regulatory sphere and have been for 40 years and that has tends to have the same the sort of high standards values whatever and you know there's quibble over exactly what the standards mean but that sort of tends to be the sphere when you start getting involved in discussions with markets like the us or china or then arguably they these sorts of things aren't quite as high on their agenda and is that the sort of risk that you see us needing to control for yeah i you know these these issues become really blue sky and strategic because yeah. you know if it's just let's go and do a trade deal with the US, you are not within a year or two going to suddenly get the uh, the US to change its long-held stance on what does and does not go into a trade deal, and they certainly don't mm. think that many of these issues belong in 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 trade deals, or certainly mm. in the way that maybe the EU and the UK might. Um, but there is a sort of bigger picture, which is, is, is sort of the, are the global trade rules and the way that trade deals are done uh, at the moment, they fit for the 21st century? I, I mean, the way I look at it is they, they did a great job um, in the, in, in, oh, sorry, fit for the 21st century. They did a great job for the 20th century in terms of reducing consumer prices, um, driving growth in, in economies, um, you know, making sure that um that countries all around the world were specializing in what they're they're best at um and that's kind of led to to um many of the advances we've seen around the world that 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 we enjoy today and of course consumers particularly in developing developed countries like the uk having extraordinary range of choice and price and availability mm -hmm. and everything else but actually the challenge for the 21st century is not how can we continue to make food ever cheaper, for example? It's incredibly yeah. affordable already, notwithstanding you know, problems obviously some in society have with, with affording food. But generally, it's incredibly, incredibly cheap. Instead, we've got these massive challenges around things like climate change, um, sustainable uh, production, etc. Does trade policy allow us to, to address those properly? I'm not sure it it, it does very well uh, and therefore the UK could sort of seize this moment to to lead an agenda which is much, much better um, at using trade global international trade to drive these other issues you know how do you incentivize producers all around the world to 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 grow food rear food in a more sustainable way if all you're asking them to do is do it as cheaply as possible because you'll buy it as cheaply as possible you're not going to get there you need to have a much more kind of nuanced approach and are you optimistic that's where the political this government's sort of heads at where the sort of key decision makers within the sort of ministerial team or just generally the sort of direction of of, of trade policy do you think that vision you just described there is is what they they share 
to be to be frank, no. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think they increasingly recognise that there is a, an agenda there, which perhaps they didn't, and that's that's positive. But mm. I think the problem is it still exists that a lot of the UK's current approach to trade policy is being sort of done on the hoof. You know, um, the referendum result was, I think, something of a surprise to many within government, even within the governing party in 2016. And off the back of that, there's been a sort of mad rush to A, leave the EU as quickly as possible, come what may, B, quickly do trade deals and, and, and design trade policy to sort of politically demonstrate that the other thing you know there's a there's another way there's a different way of doing this what i think is sadly lacking but maybe is beginning to to rear its head is a sort of coherent trade policy that you might see in other countries i mean new zealand undertook a an exercise a couple of years ago to have a sort of mass public consultation and really developed a vision and a strategy for its trade and it's sort of always had a vision and, and strategy for its trade um, you know, what are the, the key industries that we want to grow? What are the key defensive interests we want to protect? Um, what are the key markets, etc.? I'm not sure that happened at all here in the UK. Um, no, I'd that, I shared that. That's probably my single biggest frustration in all of this. It's now four years on, and I don't think we're any closer to understanding what the vision for what we're going to do with Brexit is. You know, apart from slogans and getting it done and different phrases like that, I don't know what how the UK and the UK's trading position in the world is different outside of the EU to how it was within it. And I guess the sorts of things you're describing there are the sorts of conversations. And is that the sort of thing that the Trade and Agricultural Commission will get into? Or, or is, is the limit of that much more focused on specifically standards issues? No, I, I think it is actually broader than just standards issues, which is, which is good. Um, and that's why I sort of said we're beginning, I think, to see uh, maybe a bit of a chink of light that, that um, the government does want to develop a bit more of a coherent strategy. Um, so the Trade and Agriculture Commission's main job has been, you know, it was set up in July, given six months to, 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 to almost do a policy review, to, to look at these issues um, as they relate to agriculture and food in the UK and, and trade policy and come up with a series of recommendations about how you uh, improve the export potential for for uh, agri-food, how you improve competitiveness in agri-food through trade policy, um, how you balance that difficult issue of uh, maintaining and safeguarding your, your domestic standards and regulations, um, but at the same time, um, doing trade deals and liberalizing trade um, you know not straightforward at all but I do think it's a it's a it's a very good development that the governor said actually this isn't this isn't easy this isn't simple uh, we need to sort of a, a bit of a deep dive on this and that's exactly what the commission's there to do um, so hopefully it will um, come up with some useful recommendations and even more hopefully the government will take those on board Nick, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving us your time and talking through that stuff in such so clearly. Talking to people like you gives me confidence that we might find a way through this eventually in some way. So um, obviously from our point of view, we're keen to keep working as much as we can with yourselves on areas of shared interest. And we look forward to seeing what the weeks ahead will bring in terms of the short term and then the months ahead for the longer term. Great. Well, thanks very much, Shane. Yeah, I think thanks, um, we just need to strap on the, um, the seatbelts maybe for a few months and hopefully we'll... Uh, We'll be all right when we come out the other end. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick.
Cheers, Shane. So that's our latest program. Fasten your seatbelts. That's a pretty good way of summing up the short-term issues ahead when it comes to managing the fallout of the negotiations and the sort of run into the to the first of January. As I said at the outset, the Culture Federation is here to help its members through that process, and we'll be doing all we can to ensure you know the best information you can about what is being agreed and what will be in place week by week as we move towards the deadline. So that's the end of the program. Um, hopefully you find it interesting. I certainly did. Um, we're looking at some great um, interviews coming up in the months ahead um, with other cold chain um, industry leaders and with other sort of key influencers and thinkers in on issues that matter to us. But I must, mustn't let this go without making another plug for our cold chain live event starting on the 28th of September. Over the course of four weeks, a new innovative virtual conference where you can uh, get access to a whole range of content from thought leadership pieces, written pieces, uh, interviews with key leaders in the industry, and a series of four live workshops on key topics related to our core theme, which is towards a net zero cold chain. If you haven't had a chance yet, please sign up. Um, it's free for all our members and selected guests. So if you're interested, just get in touch and we'll uh, see if we can get you registered for the event. And in the meantime, um, please stay safe and look after yourself, your colleagues and your families. <laughs>